Thank you for watching this message from the Bridge Church. Our mission here is to be a church for Christ, for community, and for the city. You're watching a message from our series called Messy Church. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know by emailing us at storiesatthebridgeilm.com. Thank you for watching, and God bless you. All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, it's good to see you here today. Glad that you're here. Happy Memorial Day to you, by the way. Um, so grateful for uh, the ability to live where we live and uh, to commemorate all the people that have, uh, the men and women that have lost, lost their lives for our freedom. So um, grateful for that. Happy Memorial Day weekend uh, to you. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the, the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab it. Grab your Bible. Uh, we're going to be in uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament, uh, written by a guy named Paul in the first century to a group of churches that was located in Corinth. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, I'll put the verses on the screen for you. And we'd love to be able to give you a Bible for free. If you, if you don't own one, on your way out today, you can grab a Bible for free at the, at the resource uh, area. So Today we're going to uh, look at another passage as we continue our series uh, titled Messy Church. How many of you, just out of curiosity, I was out of town um, last week, how many of you enjoyed Pastor Clayton and his message last week? Um, I'm grateful that we've got a, uh, a, a team of, a team of uh, pastors that can, that can teach the word and um, it really, uh, really is, a, really is a, a gift. So, well, I think we have um, already established this uh, for the weeks leading up to this, um, but the church is a, a messy place. Uh, the church is a, a messy place. It's not a perfect place. It's not a polished place. It is a messy place. And I say this all the time, but we are a bunch of jacked up people who come in this room, uh, who are in community together, uh, who aren't perfect, but we're looking to someone who is perfect. Now, there are some things in your life, there are some things in the church that are just inevitably messy. So just unavoidable. So, for instance, sometimes you are just a victim of a circumstance. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that isn't perfect. And so sometimes you are a victim of your circumstances. And that varies for, for all of us. But sometimes we just have messiness in our lives because we are, we are victims. Uh, we're victims to all sorts of different kinds of things. However... There are some things in our lives that are messy, not because we are victims, but because we have self-inflicted the messiness in our lives. Does anybody know what I, I mean? Does anybody relate with, with that? Um, I don't know how many of you uh, struggle with this, um, but I am unbelievably prone to clumsiness. Uh, I'm you, you, I know you look at me and you're like, he is such a, uh, a stud up there. How could he ever... <laughs> struggle with being clumsy. I am probably one of the most clumsy people that you uh, will, will ever meet. Now, I played sports my entire life growing up. I mean, I can spin a ball on my finger for a long time. I can juggle a soccer ball until my legs get tired. Um, I can hit a golf ball 300 yards downhill with a little wind behind me. Um, and I can, I can surf. I can ride a wave down the line. But I, if you ask me to hold my keys and chew gum at the same time, I just can't do it, all right? I just, I drop my keys all the time. And it is so, uh, so frustrating. And I see some of you moms, you, you are my hero. You walk out of the grocery store and you've got four kids, you know, uh, grabbing onto your legs. You've got 47 grocery bags, you know, all the way up your arms. You're, somehow you find your keys and open your car and put everything in it. You are my hero. I don't know how you do it. But for me, I just, I just, I'm so clumsy and I drop, uh, I drop my keys all, all the time. And I think, I think it's a disease. Um, but actually, uh, I, I kind of uh, 
figure, figure this out. Um, the reason, it's not a disease. The reason why I am so clumsy is because it is self-inflicted. All right, um, my family, they know this about me, but um, I am always over in Ethan land somewhere. <laughs> in my own little world, doing my own little thing. And the reason that I drop my keys is because I'm not paying attention to what I am doing. I'm not actually paying attention to the circumstance, and so I drop my keys. And so therefore, the issue is really, it is self-inflicted because I am uh, clumsy and I'm not paying attention to what I am doing. Now, what's true about all of our lives is that there are areas in our lives, there are things in our lives where yes, you may be a victim of a circumstance, but there are things in your life that exist there because they are self-inflicted to you. Uh, there is messiness in your life that is self-inflicted, and if you would have avoided that, then you wouldn't be reaping the consequences of those actions. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, so perhaps, perhaps there is uh, some, perhaps you, there is some mess in your life, or perhaps... Uh, your marriage is messier than it should be because it's self-inflicted. Or, or perhaps uh, there is mess in a relationship or mess in your finances or your job or your physical health because you're not a victim, but you're, it's a self-inflicted uh, wound. And what we, what we see repeatedly throughout, uh, throughout the Bible is that when we deviate from the path of God, we reap the pain and the consequences associated with that action. Anytime, I mean, this is such a huge lesson for, for anyone. I feel like saying huge. This is such a huge lesson for, for, for any time you deviate from God's path for you, you will reap the consequences of that action. You know what I mean? And so what Paul is going to do, what he is trying to uh, do for us today is to help us to see some of the issues in our life that are self-inflicted that could be otherwise avoided if we would take the time to think about them and run from them, okay? So 1 Corinthians, I'm in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to begin in verse, verse 1. This is what uh, the text says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul starts here by telling these Corinthians that he doesn't want them to be unaware. Uh, the idea here with the word in the original Greek, it's the idea of ignorant. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about the situation in their life that they are facing. Apparently, there is just a level of ignorance in this church in Corinth, and he's trying to instruct them to uh, avoid th this issue. Now, what he says next is really, really uh, impressive. He uses the Israelites, which are God's people in the Old Testament, as an example or an illustration uh, for their own New Testament situation. And so uh, theologians refer to this as typology, all right? I'm a big theological word to impress your friends later today. Talk to them about typology. The word type comes from the Greek word tupos, and it's used throughout our passage today as an example. And so a type is typically an Old Testament reality that foreshadows a New Testament reality. So we see this all, all over the Bible. I mean, this is what is so amazing about the Bible, is you, you read things about uh, stories in the Old Testament, and it's actually uh, pre-figuring. Uh, it's a shadow of something that is to come later. It's representative of something that God is doing. So thousands of years apart, this is how amazing God is. So think of David and Goliath. 
David and Goliath. We think of that as just a good moral story, and we all read it, and we think about, wow, I need to be my own David. Well, David and Goliath, David is a type, and Goliath is a type. The reason that the story is in there is because God is giving us an example and an illustration of something. See, Jesus, David is a type of Jesus. Jesus is our true and better David who went onto the battlefield all by himself single-handedly and defeated the greatest giant and enemy that we ever faced, which is Goliath, Satan sent hell in the grave. And so when you read that, you're supposed to look to Jesus and see Jesus as the true and better David. It's all over the, the Old Testament. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a little window into the Old Testament about something uh, about our lives and how it affects our lives. So here's, here's the first thing that he mentions. The first thing that he says is the cloud, our fathers who were under the cloud. Now, this isn't where your technology is stored. Um, <laughs> This is a literal cloud. I'll break it down for you. During the exodus of God's people, when God's people were in bondage to Egypt, to Egyptian pharaohs for centuries, uh, God delivered them from Egypt and he led them through the desert in a cloud, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So imagine you're an Israelite. You've been trapped in Egypt for hundreds of years. God leads you out into a desert. You do not have Siri you do not have a GPS. You have no clue where you are going. Where are we going, God? And God provides a cloud in order to lead his people by day and then a pillar of fire to lead them by night. That had to be pretty cool. <laughs> that had to be pretty, pretty cool to, to see. And what that is uh, foreshadowing, what that is a metaphor of, is the spirit of God that lives in each of us as believers and leads us and directs us through the way that we should go. So Paul's using this analogy of the cloud. Now he goes on to say, the second thing he mentions is the sea. They all passed through the sea. Well, that's a reference as well to the Exodus when God led his people through the Red Sea. So if you're not familiar with uh, the story, um, this was quite a dramatic event in the history of God's people. Uh, God is a pretty dramatic God. He likes to do things in a pretty dramatic fashion. And so uh, Pharaoh didn't like that God had delivered his people from Egypt. And so he gets his army together to chase God's people, to bring them back, literally a couple million people, a few million people, to bring them back to Egypt. And so Pharaoh is in hot pursuit of the Israelites. They come to a sea that they cannot pass, that is impassable, and God splits the sea into literally for a few miles so that they can walk through the other side. And as they get to the other side, God collapses the sea back to the way that it was, and it swallows up Pharaoh and his army. It swallows them up. Now, that is a cool story. It's more than a cool story. God is doing something in, in that. And Paul tells us that this foreshadows and represents our baptism in which we were saved in Christ when he defeated our enemies. So it's really cool. A few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, Paul tells us that through Christ, through the gospel, death is swallowed up in victory. He uses that word swallowed up, which means your sin, your shame, your guilt, your pain, everything that kept you from God, Jesus took it upon himself and through the Red Sea, through the gospel, swallowed up victory for you and gives you the freedom in, in that. And Paul's trying to give them the understanding of, of, of why that happened. Now, here's the, third, here's the third example or the third type that Paul shows us. He says that uh, God provided spiritual food and spiritual drink for the Israelites. So you're wandering through the desert. 
You ask, where is the closest Whole Foods? There is not one. You can't find it anywhere. What are we going to eat? We are in the middle of a desert. And what God does is he provides them daily with bread and daily with water for them to drink to sustain them. So literally, manna comes from the sky and water comes from a rock. And what does this foreshadow? This foreshadows the bread that we would eat in the cup that we would drink in communion uh, through the Lord's Supper. And I love what Paul says. This is one of the very explicit times where he tells us exactly what he's talking about. He says uh, that the rock was Christ. So what he's referring to is that uh, when God's people would journey through uh, the wilderness and they would come upon a mountain or a stone or a rock, literally God would make water like a mineral spring flow from the rock in order to uh, satisfy the thirst of a couple, a few million Israelites. That'd be a lot of bottled water, you know, for those people. And God satisfies their thirst through the rock. And Paul is telling us, hey, guys, the rock represents Jesus. Jesus is the spiritual food. He is the spiritual drink that sustains us and quenches our thirst and sustains our soul. So let me, let me, take, these, uh, let me take the analogy a, a little further. All of us have a well from which we drink spiritually. Now, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you are a Christian here today or if you're not a Christian or if you're spiritual, not spiritual, religious, not religious, not exactly sure where, where you are. All of us in our lives have something that we thirst and long for. We, a fountain, a well that we drink from. Something that we have to have in order to sustain our lives. Something that we feel like we have to have for our nourishment. And that we wouldn't be able to go through life if we didn't have it. We would die. Our lives would end. This is what I like to call what I've heard called a functional savior. This is a functional savior. It's just we create wells. We create things to drink from to provide us the savement, the, sorry, the salvation, the, the life that we need, that we feel like we, we need. So, for instance, for some of us, our spouse is our functional savior. We need them, we have to have them in order to feel like we mean something. We feel like we have to have them in order to feel significant in life. If we didn't have them, our life would just completely fall apart because they are our savior. For some of us, it is a career. It's a career, it's a career path that you have been on for years and years and years and your entire life rests on that career. For some of us, it is an education. It's the number of degrees we have. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's a desire or a pleasure, like a sexuality or a substance. And whatever yours is, imagine if you lost that this afternoon. Imagine if it was completely gone from you this afternoon. How would you feel? You'd be wrecked. You'd be devastated because your, your life hinges on it. It's your savior, and if it's taken away from you, then uh, you won't have the life that you want to, to have. And what happens is when we lose it, we're devastated and we're broken because it was our Savior. And what Paul, here, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that Jesus is the only true Savior. Jesus is the only true living water that can actually quench your thirst. A spouse doesn't have the ability to do that. The money and all the money in the world doesn't have the ability to do that for your soul. 
Jesus is the well that never runs dry. He is the rock that is secure and immovable through all of life's circumstances and storms because you were made for Christ. You were made for him. And it's only when you drink of his water that you are able to be sustained and satisfied because the goal of our existence and humanity was to know Christ and to have a relationship with him. So Paul's giving them a little bit of an analogy of Jesus. Now look at verse 5. He goes on and he says this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Here's what's tragic about the Exodus. After all that God's people had experienced, after all that God had done for them and delivered them from centuries of slavery and, and bondage, they're apathetic to God. They choose another God. They choose other wells to drink from. He sends 10 plagues to deliver them from Pharaoh. I mean, he splits the Red Sea. He delivers them from all sorts of pain and anguish and brokenness and generational curses. And they have, they respond to him with indifference and ignorance and apathy and stubbornness. And Paul tells us that God was not pleased with his people and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, why is he telling us this history lesson? Thank you, Paul, for the good insight about the Red Sea. That was really cool in the cloud. Like, why are you telling us all this? Here's, here's why. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples. Everybody say examples. Examples, examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's why Paul brings up this entire scenario. He is trying to warn the Corinthians and us of something that they're close to doing that God's people did for centuries that was devastating and ultimately destructive for their lives. What is it? It's idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. It's an imperative. It is a stern warning. He's being explicitly clear that you cannot, he doesn't want you to be able to mis mistake this. Now, what exactly is um, idolatry? I mean, this seems like something that ancient cultures struggled with, you know? We don't have idols. I don't have a problem, Ethan, with worshiping idols. Therefore, it is not an issue for me. Ethan, I am a Christian. Ethan, I have been in church all my life. Ethan, this or that. We don't struggle with idols. Well, the reason why we don't feel like we do is because we live in a Western culture rather than an Eastern culture, and it's hard for us to grasp this and understand this. The reason why it's important is because idolatry affects all people of all time because we are all worshipers. We're all worshipers. So what I'd like to do is... I'm going to take a few minutes, and I want to lay out for you what I think is a, a biblical framework for how we should think about our lives as worship, for how we should think about idolatry and the way that idolatry exists in our lives, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you six 
like foundational statements that kind of set up the way that we should think about worship and idolatry, and then I'm going to go back into the text and see how Paul concludes uh, for us, okay? So here's the first truth. Here's the first truth. All of life is worship. All of life is worship. Now, most of us, we think that worship is something that happens on Sundays. We go to worship. Worship is something that we do as a church. Worship is something that we do when we enter these doors for a little bit of time. Once we go back out of the doors, I do live my own life, but on Sundays, I go to worship. That's actually opposite of what worship is. All of life is worship. Worship. We are worshipers, and we worship 24-7. So from the moment that you pick your head up off the pillow until you lay it back down to rest, you are worshiping something. You are valuing something. So what is worship? Here's the second truth. Worship is our response to what we find most glorious. Worship is our response to what we find most glorious. This connects my comments um, earlier about functional saviors. So whatever is your functional savior in life is the thing that you find most glorious. The word glory in the Bible um, means weight, weightiness, significance. It matters the most to you. Every single person in, in the room here today there is something in your life that is most glorious to you. There is something in your life that is the most weighty to you, that is the most significant thing to you. It defines you. It characterizes you. It dictates who you are. It dictates what you do. There is something that you find glorious. And however you respond to that glory is worship, which means you can worship a career, you can worship a spouse. You can worship money. You can worship sex. You can worship a substance. You can worship success. You can worship status. You can even worship your own children. And because worship is a response to what we find most glorious. Now, here is the third truth. Here's number three. The essence of idolatry is misdirected worship. The essence of idolatry is misdirected worship. Idolatry isn't bowing down your knee to a wooden image. It's bowing your heart to something other than God. So idolatry happens when we make something in our lives more glorious than God. And when we start to see that thing as what is most weighty in our lives, then that is idolatry. And we start to worship it and make sacrifices proverbially to it. And give our time and energy and effort and money to it because it is our God. Idolatry is just misdirected worship, which means anything can be an idol. Idolatry is when you take a good thing and you make it a bad thing. You make it a God thing, and it becomes a bad thing in your life. Jeremiah, the prophet, he says it this way in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've turned their backs on me. They've turned their hearts away from me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out or dug out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What Jeremiah is doing here is he's continuing the analogy that Christ as the rock, as the fountain, is the well from which we drink. And idolatry is when we decide to drink from a different well other than Christ. Now, here's, here's the fourth truth. Here's the fourth. The essence of becoming a Christian is a life of worship redirected to Christ. 
the essence of becoming a Christian is a life of worship redirected to Christ. So what that means is that when you become a Christian, you see Jesus as glorious. That's how you become a Christian. You begin to see Jesus as the most weighty and significant thing in your life. Now, we, in our culture, in the church world, there are a lot of misconceptions about how you become a Christian. All right, so some people think, well, I went through confirmation class, so I'm a, I'm a Christian now. Uh, some people think, well, I was baptized, so baptism, I'm now, I'm now a, a Christian. Some people think, well, I've been a member of a Baptist church for 25 years. That's what makes me a Christian. Or I grew up in a family where my grandma, she took me to church every Sunday, so I've, I've been a Christian my entire life. When I was, when I was a kid, um, when I was nine, um, I went to church camp. Anybody in here, just out of curiosity, ever go to church camp during the summer? Went to church camp, and the uh, thing about church camp, I think every church camp in the world does this, um, but in the evenings, they have uh, gatherings like this and worship gatherings, and uh, they talk about heaven and hell. <laughs> so I'm nine years old, and uh, every, every week, the evangelist, he, he's, talk, he's talking about heaven and, and hell. <laughs> so as a nine-year-old, I'm kind of locked in, you know? Hell sounds pretty bad, yeah? Heaven seems really good, all right? So he kind of gets to the end, it's the end of the week, and he says that the way that you go to heaven is you accept Jesus into your heart, and then you can go to heaven. Now, I was a pretty smart nine-year-old, and I'm thinking, that sounds like a great idea. Go to heaven or go to hell, I will go to heaven, all right? And so I kind of do the thing, I walk out, and I, I, I accept Jesus into my heart. Now, the reality is, is that I had no clue what was really going on, what was supposed to be going on. I would have asked Jimmy into my heart if it meant going to heaven <laughs> rather than going to hell. I, I, I didn't care about Jesus. Like, I could care less about Jesus. I just wanted to get to heaven because hell sounded pretty bad, right? That is not how you become a Christian. You can't become a Christian by saying a formula prayer by walking down an aisle, by raising your hand, by joining a church, by being baptized, or even by becoming a covenant member of the bridge. The way that you become a Christian is you begin to see, God lets you see Jesus as glorious. And if you're not a Christian, this is, this is what sounds so ridiculous about Christianity. The way that you become a Christian is for the first time you get to see God for who he is. The scripture talks about the, the veil that's covering your eyes. You're being pulled back so that you can see through the window for the very first time and see who Jesus is as glorious and beautiful and as weighty and significant. And it captures your heart. It captures your heart and you enter into a relationship with him. And you become a Christian. You have a relationship with him. The essence of becoming a Christian is redirected worship back to Christ. And so rather than worship the things that you've been worshiping and finding identity and glory and significance in, you turn to Jesus and you see him as glorious and then you give your life to him. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's how you become a Christian. So the essence of becoming a Christian is a life of worship redirected back to Christ. And then here's the fifth. Here, here's, here's the fifth truth. Christ's glorification and your satisfaction are not at odds. They are not at odds. Now, our culture um, thinks about someone who is devoted to Jesus. Or when they think about someone who um, is religious, now is, that person is someone that no longer has fun in life, right? 
How many, how many of you, you like became a Christian and like all your friends are like, oh, well, he just became a Christian. Like, yeah, she's going to be no fun anymore. You know, she just got, became one of those on fire for Jesus people, you know, like she's going to have no fun in her life. So glad that I'm not doing that. You know, the essence they think of becoming a Christian and becoming religious is that you, you are now have a miserable existence of a life devoted to God. But that is the complete opposite of the truth. Because Christ's glorification, the worship of Jesus, and being devoted to him is not at odds with your satisfaction in life. They are not at odds. They are one in the same, which leads us to our last truth. Your life will be most satisfying to you when your life is most glorifying to Jesus. Your life will be most satisfying to you when your life is most glorifying to Jesus which means the best life is spent, is the life spent making much of Jesus. And it's only when you are living a life that's glorifying to him that you're living a life that's ultimately satisfying to you. Now, if you're a teenager, this is really hard for you to believe. If you are a teenager, you probably think that the essence of the good life is someday going to college, sometime, and someday getting good grades so that you can get a good job, so that you can make a lot of money and perhaps have a family with children, and so that you can live the good life. And if you get that, then you will get the good life. That is not the good life. The good life is living a life devoted to Jesus, regardless of how much money you have regardless of whether or not you have a degree, regardless of the square footage of your house, regardless of the size of the engine in your car. The life, a life of satisfaction is a life devoted to Jesus, following him and giving glory to him because that is how you were made. You were made to have a relationship with him. You were made to live for him. And now we see, look back with me in verse 13. He goes on and he says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What this means, first of all, is that none of us face temptation to idolatry worshiping something other than Jesus, none of us face idolatry that is extraordinary. None of you wrestle with idolatry that isn't common to uh, man, is what he says. So what happens is that in our idolatry, in our own predicament, in our own little thing, we feel like we're the only one that goes through that. We feel like we're the only one that struggles with it. We, we feel alone. We feel isolated. We feel like nobody else in the world has the issue that we struggle with, and, and so therefore we are on our own. And God says... There is never going to be a temptation that's going to come to you that isn't common to man. And then he, he, says, he says this next, which is an even greater truth. He says, regardless of your struggle, regardless of your temptation, God is faithful. Somebody say faithful. faithful. God is faithful, which means he is loyal to you, which means he's not going to leave you. He's not going to bail on you. He's not going to fail you. He's present. He's with you. He's got your back. In all circumstances, in all situations, God is faithful to you. Regardless of what you face, regardless of what you struggle, regardless of the path that you choose, God is faithful to you every time he's loyal, every time. And here's what even gets more amazing. Not only will God be with you, he won't ever allow you to face a temptation that is beyond your ability to escape and endure it which means there's a way out. 
Tell your neighbor, there's a way out. There's a way out. There's a way out. There's always a way out. Now, it may not be an easy way out. It may not be a convenient way out. But God is going to provide a way to escape for you. It may not make sense to your friends. It may not make sense to the people that are closest to you, the people that are around you. But God has a way for you to escape. This reminds me of just a few days ago, you may have seen the story of uh, 19 people who were uh, geology students at Clemson University, were up in Kentucky, and decided to take a five-hour tour into a cave in Kentucky, <laughs> which just sounds like a bad idea. Why would you ever spend five hours under the earth? You know, that just seems like a terrible idea. Well, they were led by the tour guide, and after they went into the cave, this happened just, just a few days ago, when, when they went in, literally torrential downpour started to happen, and flash floods started after they were already in, there's, there's no light. You, you can't see anything. There's no way to know that there's rain happening. And so they travel, and the tour guide, he gets to a place where he starts to see water where he's never seen water before in the cave. And he knows that something isn't quite right. And so as they begin to travel further and further, they get, they get trapped, and they, they can't get out. Like, literally, they can't get out. And so the water continues to rise, and they start to go different places. And it says that they find a small window of opportunity where they could escape. A small, and so they decided to take a risk and, and to try to get out. And it said all 19 people got out. They were neck high in water, but they all made it outside of the cave. There was a way to escape. Because they were willing to take the step and to do whatever was necessary in order to escape and not die in the cave. See, God in your life will always provide a way to escape. He will always provide for you an opportunity to get out of that situation an opportunity to defeat that idol, an opportunity to overcome that temptation that you may have been facing for a very long time. God is faithful. He always provides a way to escape. He always provides a way to escape. And then Paul says in light of that, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, what does flee mean? Flee mean like, now get your buddies together, you know, let's, let's have a meal, let's think about it, let's talk, you know, do a little consideration, and maybe take a few small baby steps, you know, in order to get out of your situation. Is that what flee means? That's, that's, that's not what, what flee means. Here's, here's, here's what flee means. Um, I heard Dave Ramsey say something like this one time in Financial Peace University, if you've ever gone through that. Uh, he references a proverb, I think it's uh, Proverbs 6 or something, where he talks about the gazelle uh, running being delivered from the hand of the hunter, which is probably a, a cheetah. So if you've ever watched Discover Channel, you've, always, you've seen that uh, uh, episode where on the, in the field, in, in the prairie, there are the little gazelles. And they're doing gazelle things. They're hopping and they're running and they're just having a good time and they're eating and, you know, they're little helpless animals. Why would you ever do anything hurtful to a gazelle? Uh, but they don't put the gazelles on Discovery Channel because they are alone. <laughs> they put it on there because there is a cheetah nearby. Now, a cheetah is the fastest uh, land mammal on, on the planet. It can literally go 75 miles an hour in just a few, few strides. All right. So the gazelles... When they know a cheetah is coming by, they have like a, a cheetah radar, you know, that kind of like pops up. And what do they do? When they know that a cheetah is in the area, they run. Run! They're like, run for your lives! Like, we're going to die! You better run! Now, here, here's the interesting thing. 
that a cheetah only catches a gazelle one out of every 19 times. Now, why? I mean, this is the fastest animal on the planet. Why does it only catch a gazelle one out of every 19 times? Well, the reason is motivation. Uh, the cheetah, he just wants lunch. Uh, the gazelle wants his life. He is running for his life. And if you are a gazelle, you don't mess around with the cheetah. You don't talk to the cheetah. You don't have a conversation with the cheetah. You don't get your buddies together and decide whether or not you should run from the cheetah. You run from the cheetah. You run for your lives. You do everything you can possible to get out of that circumstance because it is going to kill you. And Paul, he says to these apathetic, ignorant Corinthians, to the idolatry in their lives, you've got to flee that idolatry. You've got to flee. You've got to run. You've got to do everything necessary to stop that. If that means if you need to get the internet out of your home because you can't stop looking at porn at night, then you need to get rid of your internet. You need to just run from it. If that means if you can't stop flirting with someone at your, uh, at your job that isn't your spouse, then you need to avoid them at all costs. If you can't help but getting on social media and striking up old past relationships with people that you shouldn't strike up, then you need to get off social media. It means you need to do everything necessary to run from it because it is ultimately going to destroy your life. Some of you, you, you know this firsthand. You look at your family. You look at the generations of your family, generation after generation after generation, who have issues and struggles with certain things. And you perhaps need to be the person that's going to stand up and say, I'm going to run. I'm going to flee. This is going to stop with me. Maybe you're a dad in the room. Maybe you are a leader of your home. And maybe you need to say, this is not going to happen with my family. I'm going to be faithful to my spouse. I'm going to be committed to her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to provide financially for my family. I'm not going to turn my back on my kids. I'm going to be here. Say, I'm going to make a change. See, you have to get to a point where you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And Paul says that God will make a way to escape. You just have to be willing to do it. You just have to be willing to take the step. Now, here's, here's, here's what else he says. Look at me. We'll wrap it up in verse 15. He says this. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's how Paul wraps up the passage. A little interesting. Talking about demons and bread and blood. It's weird. The particular issue of idolatry that these Corinthians were facing is that they were going to the pagan temples and sharing meals with the pagan worshipers and grilling out and having a good old time, not thinking that was any, there was anything inherently wrong with it. Actually went into a lot of detail a couple weeks on this. But Paul's big idea is that there is more going on with that idolatry than what meets the eye. Inherent in their idolatry was participation with demons because the pagan worship was really influenced and moved forward by demonic activity. Now, we're 21st century Western Americans. We don't believe in demonic activity. 
We don't believe in any of that stuff. But if you look at the Bible, the Bible is completely filled with language that talks about there is a spiritual realm that you cannot see. What that means is that just as real as the physical world is, there is a spiritual world equally um, as, as real. What that means is that if you could see, I think, if you could see the spiritual realm, if God would allow you for just a moment to open your eyes to be able to see the spiritual activity, even in this room, it would freak you out. It would freak you out to see the influences, to see the forces that are present here, present at your home, present at your work. And what Paul is saying is that there is something greater, there is something deeper that is happening with idolatry. There are spiritual forces involved in, in that. Now, for us, I mean, I kind of believed in spiritual warfare, kind of believed in, you know, demonic activity uh, before we planted this church. Um, you plant a church, you will believe in demonic activity. Um, I cannot tell you, I mean, the number of times where I have uh, prepared a message that I believed was from God, that I knew that we had to share and to talk about at, as a church together, and on Saturday night, my kids get sick. This has happened over and over and over and over again. Something significant that God would have for somebody and something happens to my family. Something happens to my physical health. Something happens where there is a war going on trying not to allow this to happen here. See, there is a spiritual realm that is present and what Paul is trying to get his readers, his, his, his listeners to understand is that there is more at work in your life than what you can see. And when we entertain idolatry in our lives. We are entertaining spiritual forces in our lives as well. And Paul would say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the pagan cup. You cannot eat at the table of the Lord and eat at the pagan temple. Here, here's what he's doing. He's giving us one last analogy. He's giving us one last analogy about the, way, the table of the Lord, which includes food and, and drink. He's giving us an analogy of communion of the Lord's Supper. What he's saying is that if you are a Christian and you partake communion, this is really interesting. I didn't actually get all this before I studied this. Really interesting. When you eat and drink from the table of the Lord communion, you are participating with Christ. It's more than just a sacred ritual. There is something spiritual that is happening when you are receiving communion. Now, there's nothing like uh, some traditions, some denominations believe that the bread turns into Christ's body and the juice turns into his blood. And I don't think, I don't think that's uh, appropriate. But I do believe that there is something very spiritual that is happening when we partake in communion. And Paul says that if you share in Christ's table, if you eat from Christ, if you drink from him spiritually, you can't eat from other things spiritually. You can't drink from other things spiritually because it is participation with the Lord. This, this is what I love about Christianity. This word participation here, it's from the Greek word koinonia. And maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have heard of this word. Koinonia, it's, it's the word that we uh, get for a fellowship, participation. It means mutual relationship between two parties, a close mutual relationship. And Paul says that in Christ, in communion, in a relationship with him, we share in a close relational bond with Jesus. We, we share with him. Now, a lot of people think that Christianity, it's, it's just another one of the, sac it's a sacred religion in which we fulfill sacred duties in order to fulfill our religious obligations to God. That's what Christianity is. It's not what Christianity is at all. Christianity is about koinonia. 
It's about participation. It is about a relationship, a close relationship with Christ. And when we break the bread and take the cup together here on a weekly basis, we participate in that relationship with Jesus. Now, here's how I'll close. I want to ask a couple questions. First of all, I don't know who you are today. I mean, a lot of people in, in this room. I don't know every single person that's in here. I'll ask you this question. Maybe even I do know you. I'll still ask you the question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask you, do you have religion? I didn't say, do you have church membership? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you understand what it means to taste and to see that God is good, what the psalmist says? Do you, have you ever seen Jesus as glorious, as weighty, as beautiful in your life? Do you have a relationship with him? The way that you have a relationship with him is you see him for who he is and you give yourself to him. You give yourself to him and he takes your sin and he gives you his, his righteousness. You have a relationship with him. And then the last question I'll ask you is this. Where is there idolatry in your life that you need to flee from? Where, I'm not talking to the person beside you, I'm talking to you, where is there idolatry in your life that you need to flee from, that you need to run from like the gazelle runs from the cheetah? You, right now, have the opportunity to make a way of escape. You have the ability to run. Will you run? And will you flee? Let's pray. God, I do ask that you would allow all of us to run and to flee from the damaging, destructive idolatry that we take on in our lives. And God, for me, I pray that you would deliver me from the idol of success and recognition and status and perfection. Let me find Christ as the well to drink from and to fulfill me and to satisfy me. So God, would you do a work here today in us and allow us to come back to the fountain of God and to drink solely from you. So God, we ask all this in Jesus' good name, amen.